This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Few figures haunt the history and imagination of the West like John Calvin. In 2009, Geneva celebrated the 500th anniversary of his birth, and yet, late modern Europeans were clearly uncomfortable celebrating a figure whom they regarded as backward and unenlightened. Yet the Calvin we think we know is more the product of our imagination and of Enlightenment-influenced myth than the Calvin and Geneva of history. Scott Manich is professor of church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he's taught since 2000. He's a leading scholar of Geneva, Calvin, and Theodore Beza, and he's on campus this week to talk with our students about pastoral ministry and the reformation of theology, piety, and practice from Calvin, Beza, and the other pastors in Geneva. Hi, Scott, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to be here. Thank you. We are so glad you're on campus, and I know the students are excited to hear from you this week, and particularly to think about and learn from you about the nature of ministry in Geneva. But before we get there, let's get to know you a little bit. You studied with one of the world's great Reformation scholars, arguably the greatest Reformation scholar of the 20th century, Heiko Obermann. But you started out as a pastor, and you've been writing about pastoral ministry throughout your academic career. So in your mind, how do you relate those two vocations, the pastoral vocation and the academic vocation? Well, through God's grace over the years, I gained a clear sense of my calling to be one who teaches the church, one who disciples, men and women for Christian ministry. I was involved in a a local Reformed church. I was an associate pastor for three years before I pursued my doctorate at the University of Arizona. And I have a passion that the people of God honor God by proclaiming His Word, by being attentive to His instructions as we worship Him in spirit and truth. But also I have a passion that the people of God learn from the past and be attentive to lessons that God has placed in the past for our enlightenment, for our wisdom, for our good. So being a church historian who's also interested in pastoral life in the past allows me to serve the church today by studying the church of the past. Are you still actively involved in the visible church and as a minister of word and sacrament? I am ordained in the Reformed Church in America, although I don't have an active place of ministry. My family and I uh, attend a local congregation. I'm an elder in that congregation. I preach from time to time. I teach Sunday school from time to time, but I don't have a a full-time or even a part-time pastoral role. Let's talk about Geneva and what happened there and how ministry was reformed as they thought of it according to the Word of God. For example, one of the things that you point out in your uh, outstanding book I have in my hands here, and the listener will definitely want to take a look at this volume, it's Calvin's Company of Pastors, Pastoral Care, and the Emerging Reformed Church, 1536 to 1609. The author is with us now. It's Scott M. Manich. It's published by Oxford University Press, and it came out in 2013 or 2014? Uh, somewhere between well, 20, 2012, 2013. It was very end of the year 2012. And this book is highly recommended, and we're looking forward to it coming out in paper before too long, so it'll be a little more accessible. But anyone who's interested in Calvin, Geneva, the Reformation of Pastoral Ministry will definitely want to take a look 
at this volume. So during the Reformation, as you point out in the volume, 14 or 15 ministers of word and sacrament replaced hundreds of priests. How did that transition go? And were the people of Geneva happy to have that transition? Well, that's a great question. Geneva was a little different than many cities that went over to the Reformation in the 16th century. In most cities, not all, but in most cities or territories, a majority of Catholic clergy converted to the Protestant faith and formed the nucleus of the new pastoral order. That wasn't the case in Geneva, where nearly every single priest uh, left the city. They left in mass in 1535, 1536. And so when Calvin arrives in the city in July of 1536, he really inherits a vacuum. Not only had the pastors left the city, monks had left the city, nuns had left the city. We might say that the intelligentsia uh, of Geneva had left the city. And so Calvin and Guillaume Farrell, within a few months, really had to start constructing a new church order out of virtually nothing. And one of the lessons, I think, for us is that Calvin had this genius for creating institutions to preserve a theological legacy and to create a theological legacy. He recognized the importance of institutions to do that. And one of his great contributions, I think, as a reformer was uh, having that uncanny sense of how to structure church, obviously uh, following the pattern of Scripture, but how to create church institutions that could preserve and promote right teaching over the long durée, over, over the centuries to come. When we think about Reformed ministry now, we might think about this personality and that personality. And of course, when we think about the history of Reformed theology, we think of Calvin and other outstanding personalities. But you're saying that Calvin actually was thinking beyond just this minister and that minister and right now. And he was thinking beyond personalities and certainly not fostering a cult of personality, right? But he was thinking about the establishment of a long-term ministry for God's people. One of the things that really interested me as I did this study is recognizing Calvin's commitment to the equality of the ministry. Within the city walls of Geneva, as Calvin restructured parish life in the city, particularly after 1541, there were three parish churches, and servicing those three parish churches were somewhere between seven to eight ministers. And then Geneva also owned the territory immediately around the city walls, and in that surrounding territory, there were another 11 or 12 parishes that Reformed clergymen would be assigned to to serve in these rural locations. This group of men together, the seven or eight pastors within the city, the roughly 12 pastors in the countryside, formed the company of pastors. They would meet weekly, and Calvin was very much committed to this team of pastors serving as equals. They held one another accountable. They prayed together. They drank soup together. Sometimes they chastised one another. They encouraged one another in ministry. They spurred one another on in terms of their exegesis and their ability as preachers. So Calvin was definitely against the notion of creating a a cult of personality, although certainly he was kind of the superior pastor by virtue of his intellectual abilities and his kind of moral authority, we might say, within the city. But Calvin was very much against the notion that there should be a preeminent minister. Rather, all ministers together should serve together, should be accountable to one another, and should ultimately uh, serve Christ through their roles as servants of the church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Who were some of the other pastors who served with Calvin during his tenure and maybe even after? 
Well, in my study, I'm looking at a 74-year period from 1536 to 1609. And during that period of time, there were over 130 pastors who served the Genevan church, whether in the countryside or within the city. And some of them are pretty well-known, men like Theodore Beza, uh, Lombard Dano, a little bit later, uh, Simon Goulard, Antoine de Chandieu. Some of these were very prominent French pastors who had name recognition in their day, were, were some of the most important theologians within the French Reformed world of the 16th century. But then there were dozens and dozens of minor lights, we might say. Some of them were young pastoral candidates who served the rural parishes for a couple of years and then returned to France. Others uh, were men of perhaps less remarkable ability who served churches faithfully over several dozen years, perhaps several decades, but whose names have really escaped us except on the pages of archival materials in Geneva. Calvin thought, if memory serves, that Pierre Violet was one of the better preachers in Geneva and was really unhappy when he left. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Calvin very much wanted Pierre Violet to be part of the pastoral corps when Calvin returned to Geneva in 1541. But by that time, Violet was really called for. He, was, he also wanted Guillaume Farrell back, and Farrell wasn't disposable either. So Calvin, when he comes back from Strasbourg in 1541, really one of his main tasks is not only to create institutions, but to recruit a whole new generation of clergy. And that takes time. In fact, the very first years, from 1541 to 1545, Calvin doesn't have a lot of success. Uh, the men who are in office when he returns and some of his earliest recruits don't last very long. They wash out. Some of them are deposed. Uh, some of them just get disgusted and leave. There are others who, for various moral failures, are disciplined. It's only in 1546-1547 that Calvin begins to draw to the Genevan church some of the real heavy hitters of the French church. Some of these men are pastors in France who are fleeing during times of persecution who come to Geneva and join forces with Calvin. Theodore Beza uh, is one of the more prominent of those uh, ministers, but there are others as well. Uh, Nicolas de Galard was a very well-known, very highly respected French Reformed clergyman who comes to Geneva and serves for around a decade. So one of the things that was remarkable about Calvin was he really was a magnet for talented people, and that sometimes created problems. Calvin had a very strong personality. I don't think it was always very easy to work with Calvin. He was highly opinionated, and those pastors who tried to undermine him or to run around him usually didn't turn out very well. But with that said, Calvin respected men of great talent. He attracted those men, and many of those men then formed the building blocks of a Genevan church that was reformed in doctrine and in practice and forms a kind of solid, cohesive group that will provide consistent pastoral ministry for the next several decades in Geneva, well beyond Calvin's death. Just to get the listener caught up in case there is maybe some confusion, Calvin had two periods of ministry in Geneva. The initial, in which he was recruited, or more than recruited, right? He is passing through town, and Pharrell says, stay and help us, or God will curse your work. (laughs) So young Calvin uh, buys this line and stays, and uh, how Pharrell knew this Nobody seems to ask, but nevertheless, uh, Calvin stays, and so he's there from 36 to 38, but it's not an easy time. Uh, The city wants Reformation, but they want Reformation on their terms, and Calvin wants to reform ministry according to the Word of God, and he wants the church to make the decisions. And so in 38, he basically gets kicked out, goes to Strasbourg, where he works with uh, Bootser, and almost kind of has a period of seminary for himself, where he gets to study with a senior reformer who had thought through some of these issues. And as you mentioned in the book, he loved it there. 
And then Viray and others write to him, and the city writes to him, and eventually he gives in, and he, he comes back. And even Bootser said, you have to stay here in Strasbourg, or, or God will curse your yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> and But eventually, duty, you know, Calvin is a Calvinist, and uh, <laughs> he succumbs to the siren call of duty. That is so true. And not because he really wanted to be back in Geneva, but he thought this is what the Lord wanted him to do. There's something so admirable, in my view, of Calvin's sense of vocation and his sense of duty to obey the call of God in his life. When God places us in a post, we stay there until we're called from it. And Calvin really did recognize that. It's almost military, right? You're, you know, in the military, you stand your post yeah. until you're relieved. You know, I saw that so clearly years ago when I was working through the correspondence of Theodore Beza, how often in his letters he talks about pastors manning their post. We're deployed by the King of Kings, and we stay where we're called to be until we're redeployed. And that sense was very clear to Calvin and to the other Reformed pastors. You discuss a case in which there was a temperamental fellow, I assume a younger man, who was wanting a leave of absence, and he really didn't seem to have the same conception of duty as some of the other ministers. Tell us a little bit about that story. This particular pastor served a countryside church and was becoming more and more frustrated, didn't like the pastoral conditions, wasn't paid particularly well. None of the pastors in Geneva were paid particularly well. These guys weren't driving Lamborghinis. They didn't have summer <laughs> homes. They, cer- they certainly weren't. In fact, uh, at, at one period of time, the countryside pastors are almost all uniformly poor. Their salary covered only half the expenses for the year. Uh, but this particular— And you're not, you're not recommending I'm not that recommending a, that. as a pattern? No. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, but these, uh, this particular pastor had decided, unless he was granted a long three-month leave of absence, he was going to quit his post, and really tried to dictate terms to Calvin, well, to the company of pastors. And the company of pastors just aren't buying it, and they speak very forcefully to him from Scripture about, for example, don't be a Demas who loves the world rather than loves obedience to Christ. They talk about him being married to his church, and just as we don't ditch our wives, so we don't just ditch our churches at a moment's whim. Uh, At the end of the day, the pastor leaves, he's dismissed, and The overall lesson that's given by the company of pastors is even as God calls men to church office, men stay in those positions until God calls them on. And that the bond between a pastor and his church is a sacred one, even as the pastoral vocation itself is sacred. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God. People And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. It might be tempting sometimes to think about ministry in an earlier period as somehow different or easier or better, but you have worked through the records of the company of pastors, the consistory, and the various bodies that actually interacted ministry and laity. 
how was it to be a pastor in Geneva in this period? What kinds of problems did the pastors, the elders, have to wrestle with as they met together to pray and to work through these issues? Wow, that's a good question. And this was one of the real takeaways for me, just how difficult it was to be a pastor in 16th and early 17th century Geneva. I've already mentioned the pastors weren't paid particularly well. They were expected, all the pastors in the city and the countryside were expected to preach at least several times a week. Uh, Some pastors preached as many as four or five times a week. In addition, high demands in terms of what we'd call pastoral care, face-to-face, life-on-life ministry. The pastors conducted household visitations. Every household in the city would be visited once a year, shortly before Easter. But even more than that, and this is where I spent a lot of my time in research, was reading through thousands of pages of consistory minutes in the city archives in Geneva. And week after week, Every Thursday at noon, the pastors are engaging people who are struggling, people who are in troubled marriages, people who are addicted to much wine, people who have wrong understandings of the gospel, sometimes out of hardened hearts, sometimes just out of sheer ignorance. They're engaging people who are guilty of fornication, of of gambling, of dancing, of folk religion, and literally by the thousands, year by year, the pastors are engaging these people, rebuking them. I should say the pastors and the elders, because this is the one place where pastors and elders ministered together in Calvin's Geneva, in the consistory that met weekly. And I was so impressed by the efforts given and the amount of time given to engaging real people at the points of their greatest need and sometimes their greatest brokenness, seeking to bring healing, repentance, and Christian renewal. There was a lot of tension in the city between the church, that is the ecclesiastical authorities, the ministers and the elders, and the city authorities, and certainly in the first tenure between 38 and 41, but even after Calvin returned, or between between 36 and 38, and then in the second tenure from 41 following. Describe some of that, because people sometimes seize on some of the stories, you know, one of the leaders of the Libertines is made to, um, you know, sort of march around the city and announce his repentance for offending uh, Calvin and the ministers. Right. When Calvin returns from Strasbourg to Geneva in 1541, uh, he has a new mandate, and he's given a fair amount of latitude in constructing a new church through the ecclesiastical ordinances, and that involved setting up preaching services, it involved church discipline. But the one point of real controversy that remained between Calvin and the city magistrates was over this question of who ultimately has the right to excommunicate. Does that belong to the pastors, or should that belong to the city councilors? To put it slightly differently, should the city councilors be able to veto the disciplinary acts of Geneva's ministers? And as you can imagine, the magistrates just don't want to give up that right at all. They're concerned that Calvin is going to re-import a kind of papacy, a a kind of papal tyranny within the city. And so there's very much of a pitched political battle, a tug of war that takes place from 1541 until 1555. And in 1555, for a number of reasons, Calvin and his allies win control of the city council. And from that moment on, at least for the next 50 years, that changes 50 years later, but in 1555, Calvin and the company of pastors and the consistory have a kind of newfound authority to impose suspension and excommunication without the interference of the magistrates. There were some powerful elite families in Geneva 
old families, names that are still in Geneva from the 16th century, who then, in a sense, (laughs) who survived, who opposed Calvin and outlasted his influence, who had a lot of influence in the city. It was only occasionally that the pastors or that the reformers had allies in the city government, except for that stretch that you mentioned. But for much of the time that Calvin was there, he was at odds with them, and they were suspicious of him, as you say. So that sort of undermines the narrative of Calvin as tyrant of Geneva, ruling it with an iron fist and all that. Yeah, you know, this is something that I, I hope people will really take away from my book. This, this image of Calvin as the tyrant of Geneva is really a misplaced notion. What Calvin is seeking to do is to protect the church from political encroachment, which was not an idle concern, because in point of fact, this is sometimes known as Erastianism. Erastianism is state control of the church. And this was the regnant pattern in most other Protestant Reformed cities elsewhere in Europe. That's the pattern in Strasbourg. It's the pattern in Basel. It's the pattern in Bern. It's the pattern in Zurich. And yet Calvin and his colleagues are convinced that the church certainly should not be autonomous. He's not calling it for an autonomous church, but he's saying that ultimately the pastors should be responsible for the ministry of the church, which would include discipline and preaching. What they don't want to have happen is for the city magistrates to begin dictating what should be preached or how people should be addressed in a pastoral context. So what Calvin's trying to do, and the reason he's battling with the city magistrates up until 1555, is he's trying to protect the church from Erastianism, from state control. That is the overall pattern of churches throughout Europe during the 1540s, 1550s, and 1560s. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The church, for a very long time, hundreds of years, had come under the virtual total control of the papacy. And yet there had been tension in the Middle Ages for centuries leading up to the Reformation between crown and papacy. And in the 16th century, in some respects, as you're pointing out, the pendulum sort of swung the other direction to, as you say, civil control of the church. And that's a picture that people don't often get because the story that is told about Calvin is often derived from his critics in the 16th century and reported by the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment accounts of Calvin as if it were unbiased fact. I think that's true. Now, uh, on the other hand, I think it needs to be recognized that Calvin was a very strong personality. He was very opinionated. He didn't take kindly to people interfering in his business. So the magistrates in Geneva really came face to face with a very sturdy rival, we might say. He didn't suffer fools gladly. and He certainly didn't. I've often thought that I would probably rather spend time with Luther than Calvin, because I always suspect that were I to be in a room together, maybe having dinner with Calvin, that I would surely disappoint him. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've thought the same thing, Scott. But he, as you suggested, he did receive the admiration of those generally who worked with him. And underneath that sort of crusty, French exterior, what was the heart of a pastor who really loved people and thought that they should do things a certain way because that was ultimately best, well, first of all, for the glory of God, but secondly, for the well-being of the people. Yeah, you know, sometimes our vision of Calvin is a brain on a stick. 
or perhaps just a kind of a mouth that speaks, that preaches, or a pen that writes, a brilliant theologian. But what really comes through from my study of Calvinist Geneva is Calvin and his colleagues were very much committed to an engaged pastoral ministry. And Calvin's very explicit that the minister who simply preaches is failing in his duty as a pastor. And indeed, it's not enough simply to preach. One needs to preach with application. Calvin's clear on that. Christian preaching is not simply exposition, but it's what we would call application. He called it edification. But also, the task of the pastor is not simply to occupy a pulpit, but also to be involved in the lives of his people. In Calvin's Geneva, for example, according to city law, if people were sick within three days, they needed to call a pastor to bedside. The concern lest someone would die without receiving Christian consolation and encouragement and be challenged to embrace the gospel at the end of their lives. And in the 16th century, right, the medicine is fairly rudimentary as we would think of it. So your chances of getting something very serious and dying relatively quickly were rather high. Absolutely. Living in the 16th century was fraught with danger. And and Calvin himself, in a famous passage in the Institutes, notes that about all the things that could cause us to fear if it weren't for the providence of God. Tiles falling off roofs and hail hitting us in the head and falling off of horses and the list goes on and on. Uh, It was a world that was fraught with danger. A plague could come to your city, and one of the challenges ministers had was, as we were saying earlier, to stand your post. And the listener might not fully appreciate how dangerous the plague was and what a miserable thing it was when it hit the city. And frankly, any reasonable person would leave, but ministers couldn't just do that. That's right. Uh, In the final chapter of my book, I have a section on ministry during times of plague. And actually on this point, uh, I don't think Calvin completely gets it right. He's in process. And during Calvin's lifetime, there was a lottery And based upon that lottery, one man would be selected to go outside the city gates to provide pastoral care at the plague hospital, which was just a stone's throw outside the city walls. And during Calvin's lifetime, Calvin's name was exempted from that lottery, not out of his choice, actually, but out of the choice of the magistrates. They didn't want to lose their prized pastor. Because going to a plague hospital was risky. Oh, it certainly was. And in fact, the first two pastors who were recruited by lot to go out to minister in the plague hospital both died of the plague within a few months. After Calvin's death, Beza becomes the heir apparent, and this process of lottery will be changed. First of all, Beza will insist that his name be included in any appointment to minister to plague victims. But instead of sending one man out to the plague hospital, it becomes a series of rotations where all the pastors in the city are required to provide pastoral care to plague victims. Which in a strange sense, and this is one of the conclusions of my book, there are ways in which some of the later Calvinists are more consistent in carrying out Calvin's theory of pastoral ministry than Calvin himself was. So the uh, situation was by no means static, and we see change over a 74-year period as uh, different generations of pastors seeking to be faithful to Scripture and faithful to the overall blueprint that Calvin has established for church life in Geneva, nonetheless tweak it in such a way that they deem to be more faithful or perhaps in better touch with the context that they face. If the listener wants to know a little bit more about Beza, you can do that also by reading Dr. Manich's book on Beza, the title of which is? Uh, Theodore Beza and the Quest for Peace in France. And so that's looking at Beza in the context of the French Wars of Religion, which was a dominating fact of life from the late 60s through the 70s. In fact, Geneva itself lived in the shadow of the House of Savoy. In fact, it was only after Geneva was liberated from Savoy that it was able to be reformed.
informed, and they lived in constant fear of another invasion. Sometimes when we look at Geneva, we forget that uncertainty. Oh, that's so true. In many ways, Geneva is a Protestant island in a Catholic sea. It's sort of a thumb that sticks into France, right? It certainly is. And this actually enters into some of the challenges of pastoral work, particularly in the rural territory around Geneva. After Calvin dies, 1564, the Peace of Lausanne is no longer in effect. And consequently, we see for the next 40 years, Savoy is beginning to encroach and trying to win back territory that had previously belonged to the Reformed. And many of the Genevan pastors from the countryside are caught in the crossfire. And so the need for courage was not only the need to courageously proclaim God's word, it involved not only the courage needed to confront sinners and to enter into really messy domestic situations, but for many pastors, courage involved working in an environment where thugs and soldiers might well appear on your doorstep and kidnap you. And in fact, a number of Geneva's ministers at the end of the 16th century are kidnapped and held in hostage for two, three, four months at a time. And one pastor who was serving as a chaplain in the Genevan army uh, was actually executed by the Savoyards. So pastors, when you're going to a session meeting, a consistory meeting, or maybe a difficult home visitation, you might bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah, this, this is something you might not want to do, but at least no one's holding you hostage or putting a sword to your throat. One of the things that I think is so beautiful about Calvin's conception of pastoral ministry and the conception that many of his colleagues had is that their work was done quorum Deo, it was done in the presence of God. They had been appointed by God to serve the people of God, to proclaim God's word. They weren't mercenaries, they weren't men for hire, nor were they wolves feeding upon the sheep, but rather they were under shepherds. They'd been appointed by Christ to serve the people of God, following in the example of the great shepherd. So there was a very keen sense of not not only what were they to do, but who they were working for. And this didn't always hold true, but for many of the ministers, there's this very acute sense, both what they do is important, but what they do ultimately is beneath God's overtending providence and care and approval. And boy, that can give any pastor encouragement when they're going through difficult times and when faithful ministry incurs such cost. Finally, these men, these pastors, some of whom we know, some of whom we don't, these were gospel men. These were men who did what they did because they wanted to announce the gospel to people who, prior to the Reformation, didn't hear it, and as refugees streamed into Geneva through the 40s and particularly into the 50s and 60s and thereafter, came precisely to hear someone stand in the pulpit on the Sabbath and announce the good news. That's right. And yet, proclaiming the gospel not only through sermon, but through catechism, through sacrament, through household visitation, through church discipline, at bedside for those who are ill. What is truly remarkable is the pastors in Geneva saw this gospel ministry, certainly including, and preaching was a primary importance, but included all these other tasks or responsibilities of the pastors as well. We bring God's word to the people of God. One of my favorite passages in Calvin's work appears in the preface that he wrote for Oliviton's French Bible. It's one of the very earliest writings that we have by Calvin after his conversion. And in this preface, Calvin is trying to provide justification for the publication of this French version of the Bible. It was an outlawed version. It didn't have the official approval of the French king. And so Calvin in 
this preface writes that the King of Kings has granted authority for the publication of Pierre Oliviton's French Bible. And then Calvin adds this statement. He says, my only desire is that the people of God be allowed to hear their God speak. And I think in so many ways that captures Calvin's sense of vocation, but it also captures the central concern of a pastor, that pastor's responsibility at the end of the day are to make sure that the people of God hear their God speak. And that happens, again, through sermon. It happens through church discipline. It happens through visitation. It happens through catechesis. It happens through occasional conversations around the water cooler. But our task as pastors of the gospel is to allow God's people to hear their God speak. What higher calling could there be than that? Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.